Hello and welcome to the Bloomberg Tech Disruptors podcast. In this podcast series, we talk with CEOs and management teams about their views on disruption and how it's driving their decision-making and strategy. My name is Mandeep and with me today is Kylan Gibbs, CTO and co-founder of InWorld AI. Kylan, welcome to the podcast. Awesome. Thank you so much. Um, just one one point of clarification. I'm, I'm chief product officer. I don't want to take the, okay. the take the mantle. Apologies. Yeah. Yes. Uh, apologies for that. No, that is an important distinction. So, with that being said, uh, uh, maybe we can start off with your background. Uh, you know, how did you uh, start uh, or uh, come to Inworld AI, and and just a little bit about your background. For sure. So I um, I have been working on generative AI, I guess, kind of really since it came out. So sort of the onset of transformers and these new types of models. I was at DeepMind uh, working sort of on building those models a bit with the research team before um, and helping kind of our research strategy. And then as GPT-3 and a lot of these large language models came out, worked with the team on the applied side to take a lot of the DeepMind research and apply it into Google products. And so my focus was largely on conversational AI and language applications. And around that time, I met um, you know, a variety of teams across Google. One of the ones we worked with a lot was Google Cloud. And within Google Cloud, they have a product called Dialogflow, which is kind of one of their main conversational AI platforms. And I met actually our current CTO and my co-founder at Inworld, um, who was leading um, the tech team for Cloud Conversational AI. And then... Ilya, um, our third co-founder, um, had previously actually founded API.ai, which became, which got acquired by Google and became um, Dialogflow. And so, you know, we all came from sort of, I came from more of a generative AI background and, and those guys from developer platforms for conversational AI. And so we, we were monitoring sort of obviously all the trends in, in generative AI space, but also seeing on the other side, a huge growth in the amount of time spent in um, virtual worlds, whether those be games, you know, there's a lot of immersive IP that we're a part of now. You can think about, you know, obviously the, the Disney worlds and all these kinds of things. But in general, we saw the biggest trend, of course, within games and, you know, what was and slash is called the metaverse of, you know, people spending time within these kind of, you know, simulated realities. And the, the recognition was that if people are spending such a large proportion of their life in these worlds, there's something really lacking compared to our regular life, which is actually interactive characters or people. You know, we get very used to things in games, uh, you know, following main mechanics around like clicking and shooting and fighting. But at the end of the day, if you're thinking about your real life, uh, the ways that you solve problems, the things that really matter to you revolve around people, whether that's your family, your colleagues or whoever it is. And so we were like, this is this is really a core gap. And so we kind of set out with the, you know, the vision to, to build the developer platform for AI games to basically populate these worlds and kind of create, introduce new mechanics and controls into entertainment at large. And, um, you know, obviously taking advantage of the, the, the wave of generative AI that was coming to power that from the technical side. And so at this point now in world is, you know, 80 people we've raised uh, over 120 million. And, you know, we have... Uh, a great team of ML engineers and product people coming from a variety of areas, predominantly in AI and games. And, um, you know, we have, we're now starting to kind of, you know, set this central pillar within any experience development in the same way that game engines like Unreal and Unity innovated, not just games, but generally how media is created. You know, we're really thinking about how to introduce this interactive layer, which actually allows you to not only interact with characters, but also change the world and mutate things within that. So you have this sort of emergent experience. 
Um, and, you know, we're, we're mainly working with AAA game studios on the next generation of games, but also working with other types of media and entertainment groups to really bring AI into that um, with, you know, living character-centered experiences. Yeah, no, that's a wonderful, you know, background. And uh, clearly, you know, you've been uh, at the cutting edge of research, shall I say, when it comes to generative AI. So let's dive into a little bit of the specifics, given, you know, uh, every company that we talk to is talking about, you know, how they build their LLM and uh, the training behind it. So uh, can you kind of give us a sense of what is the LLM that Inworld AI is using and how is it different from, let's say, Midjourney, Dolly, or for that matter, what uh, Meta showed this week around uh, their EMU, the Expressive Media Universe? Yeah, so we use a variety of models. So we, we when we first started, at least, we were more focused only on like core conversation. And at that point, we bootstrapped. You know, we had a great collaboration with with OpenAI and Microsoft as an investor and a partner. And so we started using a lot of the OpenAI models just to power early tests. And I can tell you, two years ago, we had very different quality than we had today and the amount of work just to get something uh, even somewhat um, uh, usable was very difficult. I spent hours and hours actually in a VR headset testing these characters and it was painful. Uh, so where we're at today now is we have a series of models. And this is, I think, the core thing is when you talk to even ChatGPT, you're really interacting with one model, likely a variety of maybe a couple other models around safety and that. But at Inworld, we have like a huge plethora of different models that basically map to different parts of character behavior. So the general flow you can think about as very similar to human brain is, you know, you have this perception layer, which is, you know, starting with things like speech recognition, image recognition that are basically translating different modalities into a representation that can then be ingested by the other models. Some of those may be just vector representations. Some of those may be text. And then we have a series of models associated with what we call cognition which is basically things that mapped like almost part of the human brain. So there's like an emotion engine, a relationship engine, memory and knowledge, all of those different parts that are actually different services that are processing mm -hmm. different parts of the input. And then also within that, there's things around goals and actions and logic. And so you can literally think about these as kind of different parts of the brain. And then each of those has like a sort of secondary output that we then feed to our sort of primary models, which drive verbal and nonverbal behavior. So for verbal behavior, um, more related to kind of your question around LLMs, we, you know, we now have a pipeline where, frankly, we're serving a huge variety of different models depending on customer use cases. Some customers have very low um, volume and require high, you know, let's say, um, like low hallucination and very like, tight knowledge control, in which case we use one model. And in another case, we may use very much faster models. And the, the kind of strategy that we've taken there is to build the pipeline to be data centric and model agnostic, because frankly, there's a new model that comes out every week and our team can basically quickly adapt to new papers and everything as well. So we have, I think, 10 internal models. We also use a variety of other partner models. And then we learn sort of the optimization that we can get from from all of those together. Um, and, uh, you know, and then importantly, basically what we do is a, a variety of techniques that allows us to, for the specific character or scene, we're able to adapt the conversation um, and then for the others, we're able to basically then um, adjust it. So, so if, if I understand it correctly, uh, you're using, uh, you know, uh, a wide variety of models for inferencing and not really training. Is that the right way to frame what Inworld is? 
No, we, we are doing a lot of training ourselves as well. Um, the the way that we've approached this is like, you know, you can think about in terms of model building, there's different levels of investment that are required for different mm -hmm. stages. So if you want to do pre-training, basically pre-training a model from scratch, you're looking, even if you had, you know, 512 H100s, you're still looking at a couple months of training for a, you know, a decent sized model, let's say 13 billion, 70 billion parameter model. Um, and in most cases, the only... Re reason you'd want to do that is if we're working with a specific partner, they have specific needs and we want to optimize the model for that. In other cases, we'll basically take one of our existing models and then we'll basically find focus more on fine tuning. So our pipeline is definitely more focused on fine tuning uh, at this point, and then also a variety of other techniques with adap adapters and everything to then allow those models to, to take that update. Yeah, maybe uh, just a point on fine tuning. So uh, Fine-tuning is basically you passing, uh, you know, label data or custom data for gaming use cases because that's what you are focused on in terms of uh, your particular application. Yeah, so in general, what has emerged in terms of fine-tuning is fine-tuning tends to be very good at introducing new structure into the, into the model. So, for example, if there's certain ways that you want a character to respond or in terms of the prompt and then the generation, you wanted to output things, for example, around like the internal state of the character, the emotions of the character, you, you can control how each of those is output based on the examples that you provide. And so the, the, the prior understanding was that more more data led to better outcomes. And the realization, I think, that, the, that research in general, but we have definitely had as well, is that better data leads to better outcomes in the sense that you might have a 100 or a 1,000 really high-quality examples that replicate what exactly you want to see. And so in our case, we're usually optimizing around some form of gaming use case, yes. So the, you know, the type of dialogue that you have in a game is very different than what you have in a movie versus very different what you have in a podcast. And so how we set up those models for each of those different types of media types is, is basically how we approach that. And then for each of the characters, we build adapters. And adapters are like a different way that you can kind of, yeah. Got it. OK. And, and then since you mentioned Metaverse, uh, I mean, I wanted to spend a moment there in terms of how this field of generative AI intersects with Metaverse. So. Uh, is the context really around gaming and VR type of content that comes from generative AI, or uh, are there other ways where what you are doing intersects with uh, metaverse? Yeah, I mean, if you think about the metaverse largely as just like the the more interactive, immersive style of the internet, then yeah, we're definitely looking at that. So the way that I kind of see what what the metaverse was defined as in you know when when Meta made their announcement two years ago, and you know generally if you like like Snow Crash or you know these kinds of books as inspiration, it's like this whole separate world that you go into that's filled with a bunch of things. At least what I see is metaverse is actually the evolution of media in general, which is basically you know games. I think set this off with more interactivity and different styles of gameplay compared to how you consume things like movies and and books or, or podcasts, for example. And what we're seeing, though, is, you know, as each you can basically look at any given media type that we have today and then think about, OK, what will that look like when it becomes more interactive? So, for example, we're working with lots of groups that may not be game builders, but they have IP they want they want to bring to life and they want to put it on the web. You know, there's other groups that say, hey, I want to build a podcast, right? And I want to actually have two characters talking and then I want to allow the audience member to like step in and talk to that character. And so there's like a lot of ways that we're working with different IP holders as well as looking at different media types and how those are transformed. You know, shows are also another really interesting area and streamers is something that we're very interested in, right? So, you know, in terms of the ecosystem, 
you basically have creators who are the people building content. You have like something like streamers who are people kind of creating derivatives off of that content. And then you have viewers who are like the people like, you know, more people watch games being played now than they do actually, um, you know, uh, playing themselves. And so we're looking at each part of that ecosystem and thinking, okay, in 10 years, if all of this is interactive and integrated, likely there's going to be a lot of AI characters and there's going to be a lot of these living worlds within that. And so how do we build that? And so ultimately, I think the way that we're feeding into the, the metaverse story is to to basically bring these worlds to life, to make these characters feel like they have backstories and worlds and everything that's living on, to actually take the worlds and see about you know how, if you stepped into the world of Baldur's Gate, which is you know a very popular game that's recently come out, you know how do we how in the next version of that might that actually be like a living world that I could go and interact with, and depending on the consequences, there's things actually happening in the background every day, and I, I ultimately think this is just about bringing virtual worlds to life. Um, you know, there's there's no I don't. I think this is going to look like a sort of plethora of connected experience rather than like one separate, you know, universe that you step into through a VR headset. But that's my own perspective on what I think the metaphor yeah. might look and, like. And you mentioned, uh, you know, the you're working with a lot of AAA gaming content. Can you just double click on that aspect? When you say AAA gaming content, that means you're using yeah. that more for training uh, purposes or uh, just, yeah. Oh, um it's more so the use case. So, you know, in general with any type of media, but definitely within games, the investment from a small independent developer versus a AAA studio is very different. And AAA studios usually also come in with well-known IP. So, you know, like you could take an example like Assassin's Creed, which is like a well-known game and a universe. And, you know, when we work with like uh, any group, what we'll do is we'll, we'll first set up the world, right? So you take all the information they have about the world will translate that into the characters and the scenes and the knowledge that is like available in the in-world engine. And then you'll you'll basically then work on sort of like what the most of the work though is actually how that fits into the core game mechanics. So it's not just about sort of ingesting that into the models or anything, but actually then how you redesign games around that. So for example, you could imagine a whole game that is centered around basically a social simulation style of experience, right? So, you know, you could imagine like us, like you have 10 characters in a classroom and your goal is to basically, you know, get these two characters to go and, um, you know, join, join some team together. And in order to do that, you need to convince them and convince their friends. And so the means that the entire gameplay is actually just within the realm of conversation. And then there's other ones where you could think about a game like Assassin's Creed or Far Cry or Baldur's Gate, where, characters or living worlds can be injected to enhance the existing styles of gameplay. So even if it's a role-playing game, the ability to step to the side and have a conversation or the ability to command your, you know, your, your characters and then they can go off and do things independently and also that those conversations affect the world are all ways that we're trying to basically not just introduce these interactive characters and introduce LLMs because it's cool, but ultimately change core game mechanics and change core or loops basically that follow people follow when they're interacting with media to make it more kind of engaging and interactive. So I, as somebody who has never, uh, you know, done any game design, can uh, design a game using verbal instructions. Do, do you think that could be possible? Um, Right now, we're largely focused on professional developers. So it's like, it's less about trying to, so the, the, uh -huh. the, when you look at, I think a lot of AI products, they, um, they're they very focused on, I would say, extending the capacity of high-end creatives to the masses. 
I believe okay. in the capacity to push the top end of what creatives are possible, like are capable of. So we're not necessarily trying to allow anyone to create a, a game in a day. Rather, we're trying to help the, you know, the the premier developers to improve the potential output that they can have, and that's that's our our main goal. Yeah. Okay, and uh, so when it comes to uh, you know using content to train uh, an algorithm. Is there an aspect that you have to pay royalty to these guys because obviously you are using their content to uh, train the you know the LLM and 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 then how do you the second part of that question is how do you deal with this concept or I guess concern around deep fakes for example and uh, uh, curious to hear your thoughts on both those. Yeah. So on the on the former, we're ultimately a B2B company in most cases, meaning like when we work with a group that has IP, they own that IP. They're just working with us in the same way that if you're using Google Docs to write you know, your story, it's not like Google owns that story. Um, and so, you know, while the the information is used to serve the character and the generation, it's still your content in the same way that if you use okay. ChatGPT or MidJourney to produce you know, a slide deck or a presentation, they can, in, in some cases, at least they're like mid-journey in some of these, they hold that data. We recognize that the IP contained in that information is is valuable. And so we don't we don't take any of that. There's no royalties paid because ultimately we are only being paid off of the actual usage that the developer has of our platform. We're not necessarily trying to like take in that IP to train models that other people can use it. We're trying to actually empower those those um, studios um, in what they're creating. Um, Around like deepfakes and that, I mean, ultimately it's not really a use case we're even touching on. There's tons of consumer-oriented, you know, deepfake style technologies. In terms of what we're offering, you know, our, frankly, it's not the best fit for our platform. Like you can create for sure any character that you want and you can make it realistic with InWorld. Um, but in terms of like generating a deepfake video or something like this, it's, it's not, I think, super compelling. Um, you know, we do have lots of ethical guidelines and safety, like actually systems built in. But they're, you know, they're more focused on are you are you saying anything unsafe? Are you saying anything, um, you know, that, that crosses some boundaries? Whether those are sort of universal things like hate speech or something to that effect, or they're more um, specific in terms of is this character breaking outside of the you know, the IP universe that I as the developer have have instantiated? Got it. Okay. And is there any connection with NFTs uh, no. for, uh, your, no. no, okay. No. So there's no, okay. Just wanted to uh, <laughs> no. make sure that was the case. And, and so, I mean, this is a question that I, I guess everyone wants to know right now is how big is your model? So if I were to ask you, you know, how many, of how many billion parameters you have in your model, is that something that you would be able to quantify or I guess uh, because you're using multiple yeah, models. Yeah, like I said, we're using a, such a variety of models. And frankly, I think that um, parameter size has become, I think, less of a concern. You know, when I think the models were first coming out and you went from GPT-3 to GPT-4, everybody was talking about this parameters and they have these like hilarious charts that yeah. I think like map to like Moore's Law. It, uh-huh. Today, it's actually become far more of interest to groups to think about your efficiency of models. So, for example, 13 billion parameter Llama models today from that came out for open source by Meta outperform original GPT-3, which was 175 billion parameters, uh, just because of the way that they're trained, right? So, so like model architectures don't necessarily map to just size anymore. A lot of it's not just you know it's the data quality, but it's also a variety of other techniques they're using to optimize it. So, the the parameter question is 
like we use a variety of sizes and they're for like a variety of use cases, but it's kind of like assuming that, you know, your, if the, the kind of the, the memory usage of your internet website maps to the quality of your internet website, which is probably not, probably not an accurate um, representation. And, and this question is not to throw you off guard, but really aimed at, you know, illuminating our listeners in terms of uh, like what a typical day looks like for a chief product officer of a startup like Enrolled AI. Um, yeah, it's, it's very much split between, you know, large. So in, in most cases, we've got a great team and they handle most of our client conversations now. But when we enter into sort of more large contracts with large partners, I will spend a lot of time working with those partners or sometimes early in the discovery phase to discuss like what those partnerships look like. Uh, and that's sort of like, you could basically think about, I think any, any product role at, at any level is really kind of two sides of understanding what the customers need and then helping the engineering team to, to focus on that. So I'd say probably like 30% of my time is spent on a lot of that customer engagement. And then probably the rest of it is spent on translating that into requirements. So working with our internal team or writing documents myself that are about, you know, designing the actual systems. And then a lot of it is helping the engineering team to work on and prioritize how to design these specific features. And so it's kind of, you know, generally like a 30% split of external engagement, 70% uh, split, which is like a mix of meetings and writing documents. Um, and, you know, ultimately, I think from, from me as well, personally, I, I spend a lot of time engaging with media and trying to, you know, like build awareness in the community of what we're building. And so there's a good proportion, I guess, of time spent to that, that as well. So uh, you didn't mention, you know, infrastructure. Maybe we can spend some time on, uh, you know, the compute capacity. Uh, how much do you have access to? Uh, are there any constraints that you are seeing right now in terms of availability of com compute? Uh, just any anything uh, around? Yeah, that? I mean, so there's like, we'll start from the high level picture, which is like definitely GPUs are a... You know, there's like a race for GPUs. So there's, I don't know, if, like depending on who you're going to. So, you know, A1, NVIDIA A100s were the gold standard about a year ago. Now they're NVIDIA H100s. In most cases, your minimum wait time to get any of those is going to be like six months, even from like preferred partners. Um, and then you're also going to have issues where like I've seen single GPUs going for like $50,000 or $100,000, which is some of those are way overpriced, but it's such it's, people are in such demand that there's definitely a shortage. We've established some early partnerships with some some great providers that kind of give us that access. But even then, there are definitely cases where we're waiting to get access to those. Um, yeah. That's largely for server side training and inference. What we're seeing is actually a really interesting shift towards more interest in on device serving. So basically being able to push more of the processing onto device, which has the benefit of in in increasing performance for you know, end users, uh, increasing sort of economics for the creators and for ourselves, and ultimately allowing sort of the ecosystem to evolve. So where, where I see likely the future going in at least a year is, you know, most of the server side processing that are using like the large NVIDIA GPUs are going to be yet spent on training and testing and like cloud, cloud, pro uh, cloud inference when you do um, make those calls. And then more and more of the workload being pushed off onto local devices. And that's also being enabled by obviously a huge push by groups like Apple and Microsoft and um, NVIDIA to, to make that possible. So I think that's kind of going to be the next big wave of AI innovation is going to be like on device processing, uh, which I think will probably happen within the next year. So that's that's, I think, the biggest. And that, there's obviously constraints within that. But yeah.
Yeah. And so, uh, you know, in terms of a business model for a company like yours, how would that uh, like create a business opportunity for you? Uh, would you say you would be part of, uh, you know, the edge device app ecosystem and, and then somebody would use your app to create uh, content, gaming content or uh, curious to uh, hear from you in terms of how that uh, inferencing and edge uh, evolution will affect your business model. At the end of the day, our business model is really like basic SaaS consumption. So, you know, we're basically making money every time that there's an interaction with a character. And of mm -hmm. course, when that server side, that's easier to track. As we go into device, um, you know, there's there are it, like, overall costs will reduce for sure. And then we'll probably still, you know, try to look for ways to work with creators to whether that's, there's a lot of creative ways, frankly. So, you know, because we work with such a wide variety of different media groups, business models for customers can range anywhere from, you know, they're doing a free to play type of game and they make money off of like, you know, every in-app purchase. Others are doing like single purchase, like AAA games where you're buying for console, paying $80 for a game. And then, you know, there's never a cost incurred again. Others include sort of, you know, in-app, you know, a mix of basically like initial purchase, which may be a lower cost and then like additional in-app purchases. Um, so depending on all of those, we'll basically structure the business model. So, for example, for the ones that are free to play, um, there may be more of an interest in a consumption based model where, you know, we're only charging basically when the customer actually uses the feature in cases where, you know, you have a large scale um, console launch you know, there's options for things like revenue sharing where, you know, you could, for example, just you either either what we, we share off of the customer's revenue or uh, we're actually exploring ways as well for for end users to be paying for the AI usage. And then we would potentially be able to give revenue share back to the um, you know, the customers as well. So it's it's very honestly, it's very flexible. And I think gaming is one of the most diverse way like di has some of the most diverse uh, business models that you've seen. And so it's really up to us to make our system as flexible as possible. But at the end of the day, in most cases, it is still going to be how much how much time or how many requests did this user make and then charging on the back of that. Got it. I mean, uh, do you uh, think you will have to, uh, you know, uh, cater to the app stores in a way where the Android ecosystem may be very mm -hmm. different from the Apple ecosystem, or you think the Gen AI layer is sort of agnostic to that? Most of it's agnostic, but there's definitely a consideration there. Like, I, I mean, it's been really interesting to see also Apple upon the, you know, iPhone 15 Pro announcement saying how they're actually going to be serving AAA games on there. Um, so my my prediction is that we will have sort of a, a platform agnostic part, which is largely the server side processing, the models, all of that kind of stuff. And then what we'll need to do is we already have integrations for a variety of different game engines and mobile platforms and SDKs. As we move on to more things like on device or hybrid modes, I think that that those um, those specific platforms will each have some different way that they download the model, that they serve the model. I know that there's a lot of work happening from like NVIDIA and AMD and Apple to allow model providers to quantize or, or basically make their models smaller for a specific format that are easily served on that platform. And so that's that's something that I think will come is more like standards and guidelines. 
There's other groups, like for example, Unity has been working on ways to allow sort of um, in-engine model serving, meaning like the actual client has a way of managing the different machine learning models that are being used for the game. And so a lot of that is also partnerships between us and those groups to make it easier for the, the creators and the end users ultimately. Got it. And uh, so uh, who are your top customers or category when it comes to the customers who are currently using your product? Yeah. So first and foremost, it's definitely um, AAA game studios or, or what we also okay. call like AAA indies. So you you really have a, it's the media industry is very interesting because, you know, most in most cases around like 90 percent of consumption comes from the top five percent of the creator groups. So this is, you know, when you think about like NBC, Warner Brothers, Disney, this is very obvious. In games, it's slightly more distributed, but still, you know, very focused around groups like Activision, Ubisoft, Epic, in terms of time spent in games, not number of games. Um, and so, you know, we are very much targeting and working with those AAA studios. And then AAA indies are interesting. So there's a lot of groups, for example, coming out of, you know, Riot and Epic that are starting new, smaller gaming companies but that are kind of, you know, they're just basically pulled teams out of these AAA groups and are building now large other, other games. And so there's like another category there. Um, beyond that, there's sort of a broader uh, group within like media entertainment, which is, you know, groups that I would classify as like IP owners. So these are groups that are less focused on the um, serving format in terms of like building a game or a mobile app or whatever it is and more interested in, I have this IP, I have this character, I want to bring it to life and put it everywhere, right? That's, that's their goal. Um, and then there's, uh, yeah, I guess, I guess there's also like brands. So there's a smaller category, which is those who are, for example, you, you know, that you may have seen, like there's like Roblox worlds with Gucci and there's Coca-Cola and all that kind of stuff. And so brands wanting to introduce, um, their content natively into the experiences where the younger generations are, which is largely within these games and virtual worlds. And so there's a lot of work there. That's where actually coming back to the point you made earlier on Meta, my prediction is that, you know, groups like Meta that already hold those main user groups are going to be very targeted on that. And so like while we work with brands, um, we are very focused on those like top end technical creators because at the end of the day, the groups that already own those consumer surfaces will be more easily able to serve, I think, those those brands um, to, to kind of like uh, you know, meet their audiences and, and more easily uh, deliver on those ad dollars. Okay, I like to reserve the last five minutes for some uh, lightning round, rapid fire questions, so sure. you can keep your answers brief. Um, training versus inference, which one do you think will be a bigger market uh, five to ten years from now? Inference, one hundred percent. I think training is already. I mean, training will be done by a very small number of groups, and I think inference will be done by everyone. So, in general, the amount of dollars spent on inference will be significantly higher, even if the like. Um, each relative instance of training will be significantly higher. Um, it's the, the absolute numbers will still be on inference side. And uh, would you uh, say inference would be done mostly on cloud or it will be more on edge? Uh, in two years, it'll still mainly be cloud partially on edge. I think in five years, half, half, maybe more. Within 10 years, everything will be on device at least. I believe it, it's a matter of, I think, how quickly consumers adopt new devices that allow for that. Got it. And uh, most important metric for your business success. Uh, 
probably something like the number of active end users. Um, so basically, it's a proxy of both how many active developers do we have and how good are the experiences that they're building. So ultimately, how and how many end users or players are actually interacting with experiences that have in-world powering them is, is probably the most important indicator yeah. that we have. What what, what uh, could go wrong with the assumptions uh, that you are making? Just one thing, if you had to call that out. Uh, there's a very, I mean, that people stop, I think this is very, this could go wrong. It's kind of one of those like low probability, high risk is, you know, let's say people stop consuming media, playing games, interacting on the internet <laughs> for whatever reason, you know, yeah. like things like COVID showed us that like weird events can happen in the world that, that dramatically change behavior. Those COVID itself was very positively in the favor of more digital interaction. But for whatever reason, if there's a shift or policies or regulation that makes that more difficult, I could see that being a challenge. I think it's you know probably I'd give it like a two percent chance, but uh, it it could happen and it would be a very large outcome uh, change. But I I I think it's very unlikely. But it, it could could be catastrophic, not just for us, but for like large. Any tech company, I guess. Yeah. And uh, lastly, any misconceptions about your company or generative AI in general that you want to clear on this podcast? I think the biggest misconception that I see around AI is that like AI is innately valuable. So when these first products came out around like things like Midjourney, Stable Diffusion, even Dal, like you know, GPT three, ChatGPT the product itself was the AI, right? You're basically just creating an interface on top of interacting with a model. And what I've seen is a, a shift towards integrated pre features that basically mask the use of AI. And they're much more elegant. The way that, for example, Spotify, you know, you can enhance your playlist. You know, you're, you have your DJ, your Spotify DJ. You know, Figma, Adobe have adopted these very well. Apple does this seamlessly. There's not a single place where they tell you about the AI, but of course, all your photos are being upscaled. You know, all of your, you know, your compression is being handled through AI. Um, you know, of course, like there's things like the series and, and all of that. But I think that people need to stop thinking in terms of AI and just think in terms of building what customers need and using the best technology available. And like I see tons of founders and, and startups and people in industry just rushing to integrate AI. And I see it on every single ad. And... <laughs> Ultimately, I think that people don't care at the end of the day and are going to be kind of burnt if you're trying to just tell them that they should use AI. When ultimately, end of the day, it's like focus on what people need and build for that, whether that includes AI or not. You happen to now have AI, which is this brand new, exciting hammer to use. And I'd say yeah. try it, but um, focus on the customer's needs, not on like the technology itself. Right. Kylan, this has been absolutely wonderful. Really enjoyed our conversation, and I want to wish you the very best for the future. And uh, would love to have you back at some point in the future. Thank you so much, Mandeep. Really appreciate it. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening.